1: A proposal for mandated care as street homelessness increases in San Diego.
2: The homeless residents I've been speaking to feel less certain that a
1: solution's coming for them. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A report on kids who give care to their wounded veteran parents. There'll be sometimes I'm sitting
3: there and either I will hear them say, "Hey, can I get some help?" or I'm always on the listening.
1: And coming up on our weekend preview: art, dance, and a classical concert for Ukraine. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Governor Newsom's new care court proposal is the latest effort to bring treatment to people living with severe mental illness. The plan would allow family members, first responders, and others to refer people with debilitating psychosis to be evaluated, treated, and housed before they end up in the criminal justice system. Mayor Todd Gloria, who joined the governor in announcing the plan yesterday, said care courts could reduce the number of mentally ill and addicted people who end up unsheltered on the street. And it seems some kind of solution has never been needed as much as now. Numbers from a downtown survey confirm what many San Diegans already know, street homelessness has increased around the city. And as Voice of San Diego's Lisa Halverstadt reports, it's led to more suffering, drug abuse, and despair. And Lisa, welcome to the program.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: How much has street homelessness increased?
2: So as many of your listeners probably know, hundreds of volunteers fanned out across the county last week to count people living on the street. We won't have those final results for several weeks. But as you said, a downtown business group does do a monthly count and they have tracked a significant spike in homelessness downtown. They counted more than 1,440 people living outdoors downtown and some areas just outside it in their latest count. And that is a 65% spike from last spring.
1: What are the reasons for the increase?
2: Maureen, there's a lot that we still don't know about the impacts of COVID on our homeless population. But what we do know is that most city shelters were not taking in newcomers for weeks earlier this year due to a spike in COVID cases at shelters. And that meant that more folks who might have otherwise been in shelters were outside. There have also been some changes in jail booking policies due to COVID that many folks have theorized could be having an impact on what we're seeing on the street. Also, enforcement patterns can impact uh, what we're seeing in terms of visibility of homelessness. I will say is I've also been hearing personally more anecdotes about people that are becoming homeless or who are on the brink of homelessness, and that's something I really would like to dig into more
1: myself. And what have you seen and heard about the type of atmosphere this increase is creating for the homeless?
2: Well, I have to tell you, Maureen, I've been writing about homelessness in San Diego since 2015, and I am seeing a new level of despair on the street right now. The homeless residents I've been speaking to feel less certain that a solution's coming for them. The drug overdose and fentanyl crisis that has been impacting our entire community is even more dramatically impacting our homeless community. There was an 85% year-over-year spike in drug overdose deaths in the city's homeless population. In some county data I recently got, that is partial data and just focuses on cases investigated by the medical examiner's office. There also seem to be more people on our streets who are struggling with serious mental illnesses. I'm also hearing more about tough interactions between housed people and unhoused people, particularly with unhoused people who seem to be struggling with mental illness or drug addiction. So it's really rough right now. How
1: has the city responded?
2: Well, Mayor Todd Gloria teamed up with the county late last year to open a new shelter in the Midway District that's specifically focused on serving people with mental health and substance abuse challenges. The mayor says he's also worked to increase homeless outreach and shelter beds. And in his state of the city in January, he said he'd be lobbying state leaders to reform the state's conservatorship process to make it easier to force especially vulnerable homeless residents to get treatment. Uh, He has argued that it isn't compassionate to let people languish on the streets. But I would note that he's faced criticism for advocates for continuing uh, controversial homeless camp cleanups like the ones we've seen recently in Midway and the enforcement that had ramped up under his predecessor's watch.
1: So then what's your take on the new CARE court proposal announced yesterday?
2: The devil really is in the details here. And what Governor Newsom announced yesterday is really just a framework. I should note that the reforms he's suggesting are not about conservatorships. I know that's been in the news a lot, especially given uh, Britney Spears' struggle with one. This proposal is really about a new court system that would come with care teams to help coordinate treatment and housing for people that are deemed eligible uh, to be in this system. And those who are enrolled will apparently have more of an opportunity to, to discuss their clear care plan than they would uh, under a conservatorship. But they could still end up in a conservatorship if they don't stick to that plan. It's also notable that this framework would create more mandates for counties to provide this care. And the governor says that billions of dollars that he's allocated to homelessness and behavioral health services should make this more feasible. I think it's really important to note that, you know, the governor wants to move forward with this quickly. But within a short time after his announcement yesterday, groups like the ACLU and the State Association of Counties were raising some concerns. Also heard from a lot of groups who were concerned about the civil liberties of people who might end up enrolled in a program like this. and then. The same time, there were some mental health advocacy groups who were cheering this proposal because they do think it would make it easier to connect people with care.
1: Do you think the present situation is forcing the hand of city and state leaders to come up with new solutions to help unsheltered people?
2: Absolutely. At the press conference in San Jose yesterday, Governor Newsom was really playing up the $12 billion that he allocated in the state budget for homelessness, and he's proposed another $2 billion in spending for this coming year's budget. But as he and Mayor Todd Gloria noted yesterday... Californians are not seeing the result of this money on the streets. The mayor told me yesterday that that is a major reason that he's backing this new court system. He noted that the homeless population today really seems to be facing more challenges than ever. And he thinks that a greater capacity for governments to force people to seek care needs to be part of the solution.
1: I've been speaking with the Voice of San Diego's Lisa Helverstadt. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. More than two million American children and teenagers live with a wounded or ill veteran. Many help with the veterans' care. And those young caregivers often suffer with stress, social isolation, and less parental involvement in their lives. A new study is trying to understand their experiences. Carson Frame reports from San Antonio. Come on. The Gary family home outside of
3: Austin, Texas, is a revolving door of medical professionals coming to assist Tom, the patriarch, an Air Force veteran with advanced ALS. Every few hours, a respiratory therapist or hospice nurse enters a key code to get into the house, and the German shepherds, Lou and Remy, go crazy. It's life here at the Gary's. (laughs) We try to make it like an ICU, but it's really like a zoo ICU. That's Laura, Tom's wife and primary caregiver. Tom is bedbound and paralyzed with a tracheal tube. He communicates with a camera that turns his eye movements into strokes on a keyboard. Tom's son, Trey, was 13 years old when his dad was diagnosed with service connected ALS. He's 19 now. I can pretty much do everything uh, that needs to be done with my dad, like trait care, um, suction, stuff like that. I run errands to get food for. Me, my mom, or my dad. Uh, I run and get meds. I just pretty much do everything around the house. Watching his dad's disease progress and trying to support his mom have taken a toll on Trey. His attention is always split. There'll be sometimes I'm sitting there and either I will hear them say, hey, can I get some help? Or I'm always on li- listening. They can say, come here to the dogs and I will hear Trey come here. So I get up and run. Though the Garys have tried to shield Trey from many aspects of his father's care, he sticks closer to home than before. Laura says he became less engaged in school after the diagnosis. He took a step back and he became more attached to his dad and to to me and to our family and what was going on. I think early on he kind of thought maybe he should be the man of the house because daddy couldn't. The Elizabeth Dole Foundation recently commissioned a first-of-its-kind study on military caregiver children like Trey. It found that they often suffer from stress and anxiety, and many report social isolation. Others are hesitant to leave the house or have friends visit. And some say their relationship with their healthy parent has suffered as well. Stephen Malik is a senior researcher with Mathematica, the firm that carried out the study.
0: We have some kids who are making sure that their service member takes their medicine. Uh, doesn't forget to turn off the gas on the stove. Um, And then we have some folks who are serving as uh, kind of de facto therapists for an uh, an emotional support for their service member.
3: Malik says a lot of these kids are parentified, meaning they're taking on developmentally inappropriate responsibilities normally reserved for adults. Cleo Jacobs-Johnson co-authored
4: the study. Kids are having a hard time understanding the experience of being a caregiver, understanding their service member's injury or the illness and the impact it has on them.
3: Mathematica also found families often don't know where to turn for help. The Dole Foundation is building a coalition of government agencies, schools, nonprofit organizations, and medical institutions called Hidden Helpers. The idea is to form support groups, offer mental health care, and help kids and teens learn how to care for loved ones while still growing themselves. Despite the pain points of life in a military caregiving family, there are some upsides. Laura Gary, formerly a caregiver fellow with the foundation, says her son Trey cares profoundly for people in ways his peers don't. And so he's very good about, you know, kind of anticipating my needs as well as Tom's, which I have to say makes me such a proud mom, but then it makes me feel bad that my 19-year-old is worried about my well-being. On top of his family responsibilities, Trey is going to college, hoping to graduate with an engineering degree. He's taking his classes part-time online, which allows him to stay close to his dad. I'm Carson Frame in San
1: Antonio. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. In our weekend preview, we have some contemporary ballet set to bluegrass, visual art from the border to the desert, and a chamber concert dedicated to Ukraine. Joining me now with all the details is KPBS arts editor and producer, Julia Dixon-Evans. And Julia, welcome.
4: Hi, Maureen. Thanks for having me.
1: Now, contemporary ballet company The Rosin Box will have three performances this weekend beginning tonight. Let's hear about their March series.
4: Right, this is kicking off their new season, and it features two premieres by local women choreographers. There's Carly Tapazio's Don't Look Down, which is atmospheric and kind of moody. And then there is Bethany Green's Devil Get Behind Me, which is exciting because it's set to a live score of bluegrass music. And from what I've seen, it's playful, it's lively, and then juxtaposed with the ballet is just kind of surprising. That will be performed this weekend. The music by locals Clinton Davis, Aaron Brownwood, and Aaron Bauer.
1: The Box performs tonight, Saturday, and Sunday at 7.30 p.m. at Lightbox Theatre. And you have a few visual art recommendations, so let's start in San Ysidro with the Front's 15th annual Dia de la Mujer exhibition.
4: Right, this opens with a reception. There will be music, spoken word performances, as well as food and beer from Mujeres Brewing Company. And this is their annual celebration of art by women from the border region. And it will be on view through May 7th with a bunch of workshops and projects scheduled throughout the next two months as well. And there will be 40 artists in the show. So I'll give you a few on my radar to watch for. There's Angelica Omanya. Tara Arunzakul, Bridget Roundtree, Bhavna Mehta, and Yvette Roman. And also, the youth arts nonprofit, A Reason to Survive, they'll have an interactive postcard installation going. So don't miss taking part in that. So that
1: opening reception at the front in San Ysidro is tomorrow from 5 to 8 p.m. Now let's go to North Park, where a group of artists have been working together all month on a project. Tell us about Syntax.
4: Yeah, so this is a group of 15 artists, and they began meeting virtually at the beginning of the pandemic. And then since early February of this year, they've worked together in person. They're collaborating on site at Art Produce in North Park in this evolving project Participating artist Michelle Montjoy, she referred to it in one of her Instagram posts as a laboratory rather than an exhibition. So, at various points throughout the process, you could have looked in these windows and you might see bowls of cereal and glue arranged on the floor or these gigantic branch needles suspended from the ceiling, knitting large-scale textiles. There was a human basketball hoop at one point. So it's pretty remarkable. And this Saturday is your chance to step inside. There's an open house reception. And then after that, the works will be on view by appointment for one more week, closing on the 12th.
1: Right, that syntax open house will take place Saturday from 5 to 7 p.m. at Art Produce. A little further away, but still in San Diego, Borrego Springs is host to the third annual Candlewood
4: Arts Festival. Julia, what is that? So this is the third year they've done this. It's all curated by Chris Kuramitsu and they selected artists to install site-specific temporary sculptures throughout Borrego Springs. And she said that there were several kinds of threads or themes that came up that the artists were drawn to. And it was like the land, labor, and also agriculture. One of the works that I'm most excited about is Sharon Gurgis's piece at the Salie Orchard. And it will be accompanied by a performance by Amatisse Modivali, who has done these creative performance responses to Gerges' work in the past, including a piece that she installed near the Egyptian pyramids in Giza. And that performance is just a one-time thing on Saturday at 4 o'clock. And also in Borrego Springs, I really want to check out Noé Olivas' installation, which is about service workers in the desert region. He interviewed them and captured their stories in these audio recordings that we'll be playing and also made these gigantic portrait-sized name badges, like the kind of name badge that you would find on a uniform So in all, there are six visual artists and they have their work scattered around Borrego Springs and you can go and visit those at any point in the month. There is also a group exhibition of work by 11 artists from Borrego Springs High School and they organized that group show themselves. And that is at the Candlewood Arts Festival Gallery. That exhibition has an opening on Saturday from 5 to 7 This weekend, you can just show up to the Christmas Circle in Borrego Springs. That's the unofficial headquarters or you can find the map of all the works online.
1: Candlewood Arts Festival's opening weekend kicks off Saturday and Sunday in Borrego Springs, but the art will be on view through March 27th. Finally, some music. San Diego-based Le Salon de Musique is dedicating their Sunday afternoon performance to Ukraine. Tell us about that.
4: Right this is a really intimate chamber music series. There's no stage so the performers are right at your level and there will be an introduction by an experienced musicologist before the show and even a champagne reception. And this weekend, inspired by that Leonard Bernstein speech um, that was after the assassination of JFK where he said this famous line, this will be our reply to violence, to make music more intensely, more beautifully, more devotedly than ever before. So in that spirit, They are playing works by three composers. There's the Hungarian Franz Liszt, French Camille Saint-Saëns, and the Polish composer Frédéric Chopin. Saint-Saëns is a favorite of mine, and they're playing this one. It's his string quartet number one in E minor, which is definitely intense and beautiful and even a little bit menacing.
1: Le Salon de Musique performs Camille Sanson and others Sunday at 4 p.m. at the La Jolla Women's Club. You can find more information on all these events and more at kpbs.org arts, where you can also sign up for Julia's weekly KPBS Arts newsletter. And I've been speaking with KPBS Arts editor and producer, Julia Dixon-Evans. Julia, thank
4: you. Thank you, Maureen. Have a good weekend.
0: We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.